Hi everyone, it's Paul. In this wild election season, is it possible to have real discussions with real people that helps bring some understanding of one another at the end of it? That seems to have been really hard. I personally have lost some really significant relationships in my life as I try to have some hard discussions. Sometimes I've done those discussions well, and sometimes I have done them so not well that it makes me blush. Now, some out there may say I haven't done any of them well, but that's a whole nother group of people. To the best of my ability, I've tried to carry out what I feel like I'm supposed to do and the jackhammer to some hard pan that I'm trying to take out there. But there's a group out there called Resetting the Table, trying to do the hard work of getting us to have good discussions together in some ways for the sake of democracy itself and certainly for the sake of relationship being preserved. Melissa Weintraub is a, is a rabbi. She's the founder of an organization called Resetting the Table, which is getting people to sit around a table and have discussions over hard issues and not, not avoid those hard issues, but actually have those discussions. So let's talk to her and listen in. Maybe you're somebody that you struggle to have those discussions. Maybe you're like me and sometimes you feel like you do them well and sometimes not so well. Sometimes you just want to win the argument and sometimes the argument's pretty painful and you respond from that pain. And sometimes maybe you really do have a heart for humility and relationship and it works well. Well, Melissa is going to join us and have some insight into how this works and tell us how her group is doing it. And by the way, would you help me continue to have discussions like these by joining our NPE Patreon group? Go to my website, npepodcast.com. Click on the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. It's a place where you can provide just a little bit of monthly financial support into this whole thing. And by a little bit, I mean it can be as little as like $5.99 a month. By doing that, you get uh, access to my audiobook series. You get access to our private NPE discussion group on Facebook. And if you go up some other levels, you can get an autographed copy of my book and some other cool swag like T-shirts or coffee mugs or something like that. Go check it out. Go to npepodcast.com. Click on that Patreon button and see if that's not something you would help join in on. All right, let's talk to Melissa. How do we have hard conversations in America today about divisive issues? How do we reset the table? Let's talk to Melissa Weintraub from Resetting the Table on the NP Podcast at npodcast.com. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical where we're challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Swearingen here, the nonpartisan evangelical. Glad you're with us. How do we have conversations around political issues in America today? Has anybody noticed that's a little bit difficult? I have a great guest today who is working on that exact issue. This is Melissa Weintraub. She is a rabbi, by the way. Is that right? A, a Jewish rabbi, Melissa? I am a Jewish rabbi. Wow. Yes, and I'm delighted to be here. You are our first rabbi on the moment. show. Yeah. What'd you say? <laughs> I said you are our first rabbi on the on oh, the podcast. Okay. All right. I'll take it. I like sure. to break precedent. And and she is the co-executive director of Resetting the Table, and they have a wonderful film out called Purple America. We need to talk. So, resetting the table in a time that you just said is fraught with peril a little bit in our relationships. What is the goal of resetting the table? Tell us about the name and, and the organization that you co-founded. Sure. So we work to strengthen democracy by equipping community leaders uh, with tools and skills for collaborative deliberation across silos in American life, specifically political silos. We brought about 29,000 people together 
We do uh, a whole host of different kinds of work. A lot of it is focused on clergy and campus professionals and other people who act as societal conveners um, who are organically bringing together diverse constituencies or who uh, are like journalists, like they're working to translate one party to another party uh, to help people achieve breakthroughs in communication and understanding and empathy across their differences. Do you want to hear about the name resetting the table and how it came to be? Yeah. Yeah. A a lot of our, our, so I spent 25 years working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict personally. And in, in our origins, resetting the table was specifically working on disagreements surrounding that conflict, political differences, and helping make arguments better across the political spectrum around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the U.S. That was a very niche focus. But that, as you are likely familiar with among, in the Jewish world uh, and also among evangelicals and, and other religious Christians, there's a tremendous amount of tension and avoidance, disengagement, volatility around that conflict. Originally, our methodology and toolkit focused on resetting the table, essentially, around that conflict within the establishment Jewish community, the kind of the religious, all the engines of Jewish life. And and then that expanded, particularly in 2016, as we watched our own country degenerating into that level of intractable social conflict and realized that we had a methodology and toolkit that needed to be applied much more broadly. But originally, what we meant was resetting the table within uh, within the organizations of Jewish life, uh, that we weren't overturning the tables. We weren't like, this was not a radical move. This was a way of changing the internal conversation um, among people who sit in different places politically, who need each other's thinking for us to get smarter and have better interventions in that conflict. So how was that? When you start talking about, we're talking about relationships breaking down and those things in America, but when you're talking about Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you're talking about bombings and guns and kidnappings and all kinds of terrible things. How was it to bring people to discussions around that topic? How was it to bring people together? I, I always uh, feel that I got a front seat to hope, even in the face of violence, the most entrenched and tractable differences, because in my work for, for so many years has been about helping people who had you know, just gotten to the point of seeing each other as beyond sympathy, coming into an awareness of each other's often complexity, integrity, realizing how much they didn't understand about each other's lived experience, realities, storylines, etc. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular, like it can look like it's about all of these various competing interests around the status of Jerusalem and water and security and refugees, but at its heart, it's really fundamentally a conflict around recognition and the lack of recognition. The and so much of the the conversation around it misses uh, that fundamentally Israelis believe that it's become prevailing, at least I should say, among Jewish Israelis to believe that Palestinians don't recognize Israel's right to exist. It's uh, a prevailing understanding among Palestinians to believe that Israel will never recognize the wrong in which it was formed and the displacement, the kind of collective dispossession of their people. And uh, when people achieve shifts of recognition and they come to understand uh, where each other is coming from, then there's all kinds of transformative possibilities that emerge from that. So I do the work that I do because I believe in the transformative shifts that can happen through human interaction, particularly when you have the right people around the table and then you do the right things with them afterwards. And we bring all of that to bear on the conflicts in the U.S. as well. So is that the basic issue of American politics now that we lack empathy and sympathy and understanding of one another? Uh, I think that there are a lot of things at play in the U.S., but it certainly exacerbates every other difference that we have, that we we have gotten to a point quite similar, actually, to what, what happened on the ground in 
in Israel and in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I often think that this time in the U.S. reminds me of the years before the Second Intifada, actually. And the, the kind of the, those tinderbox years where those of us who were most inside that conflict were just waiting for things to explode. And, and I, th- this time reminds me of that time in the sense that, that we have a lot of people who are mutually obsessed with each other, but have very little contact with each other's actual lived experience and, and, and narratives of reality and understandings of what's happening in our country and understandings of various issues. This is not just about uh, human understanding of people's storylines. It's also an understanding of people's takes on issues. Like fundamentally, people don't understand each other's positions on abortion and the role of government and on fundamental economic questions. Just so many ways we don't understand each other in, in very basic ways. And not only that, but we have that incomprehension has become vilification and dehumanization. And people believe that those different than themselves are dangerous, are evil, are so repellent that they can only be vanquished. There's no talking to them. It's really like straight out of the way that people in the lead up to the second intifada talked about each other. There's no talking to them. They can only be squelched. And that has historically been something that has produced violence, uh, if not all kinds of other harms. So that mm. is really one of the things that drives me and us to do this work that we do. And, and you talked about silos before. How does our politics today compare? We all love the musical Hamilton. And we know that he and Aaron Burr picked up guns and shot at each other. So politics has been divisive in America before. How is it now compared I keep hearing us say it's the worst we've ever seen it in, in our lifetime. How does politics compare now to other times in American history? Yeah, so I am not a really an expert on that question. I will tell you what I know, okay. which is that the studies do show and study after study has found that according to a, a whole host of indicators that that we are more combative and divided, polarized and at any point since the Civil War. And, and there's been a lot of studies that have tried to get at the root causes of why, and they usually come down to things like geographic sorting, like the the great sort whereby most people just come into contact far less with anyone who disagrees with them. And people are much more likely to, to live with, to marry, to go to self-sort by religious community, which is something I know that has impacted you personally. And maybe you want to come in here and and talk about this and not just ask the questions. But there's just been this great kind of self-sort in terms of uh, geography. And it plays out even in purple places where we've done a lot of work in rural Wisconsin and Iowa, which is a very purple area. It's where we made our film. And when we first started doing work there, people would say, like, this is the neighborhood where the Reds live and where the Blues live. And this is the grocery store they go to and where we go to. This is where they go to church and where we go to church. That distancing, that social distancing creates a lot of psychic distancing and we can just project onto each other a whole host of things. And then there's the role of media and that, and it's just unavoidable to look at the media as symptom and cause, but there, but there's systemic issues with mainstream media and with media in general, as well as with social media that we could talk about. Yeah. Those are a big part of the silos, I would think, of of we're all getting, we're all, many of us are getting information from places that just feed our own narrative rather than ever having that narrative challenged and, and yeah. hearing other points of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's interesting. And, and like I said, you can ask me questions on this too. That That's okay. my wife. I was, I started a ch- an evangelical church. My wife was mayor of our city and we just really saw things that needed to be changed and were shocked to find out that wanting better things to happen in your city aren't conservative Christian ideas. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that. And so we really saw ourselves recalibrated by just wanting our city to be a better place to, to realize, hey, there's some fairly progressive ideas that have to come about to see some of these systemic economic inequalities issue change. Mm-hmm. And to see some of our poverty broken down and and mm-hmm, we're shocked to mm-hmm. find out that 
conservative Christians didn't think those things were good ideas hmm. <laughs> because so just the and, things that the things that you wanted to accomplish required a, a shift in political identity. Yeah. And my understanding is that left you in part because of all of these dynamics of polarization and siloing, there's like a, a homelessness that it ensues. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. It, it took time. It, in some ways we had to govern ourselves. There were only, I could only say certain things from the pulpit right. without people leaving. And so we, we went through a lot of that. But yes, mm-hmm. and, and many people I'm running into today call themselves evangelical orphans because they, mm-hmm. they had to leave their church community, which is a painful tearing away thing because they just mm-hmm. didn't feel like, I guess the thing is you feel like you, you have a pressure to buy the whole bit or be out. There's right. not room to, in these conservative Christian churches, there's not room for progressive people in mm-hmm. that thought. Yeah, that all or nothingness is so much a function of polarization, actually, for people to feel that they can't be all of who they are holistically, that there isn't room for all of their nuances, that you have to be this or that. And so many people feel that way, evangelical or not, in whatever identities they're holding, there is a sense that you either subscribe to the full party line or you are an orphan or there's no place for you. And this area, again, where we made the film, there's uh, the majority of people are living in that sense of, of homelessness and a sense that there's no party that represents them. There's nowhere to go. The space that for their politics doesn't exist in the world. It has to get created. So the film is great. I, I, I've watched it a couple of times and you get people around the table that have very different, you have the boomer, rural perhaps Trump following guy and then the younger progressive guys. And there are, I call many cringe moments where people are sharing honestly from their heart. And I guess that's the goal is people to share honestly and for them to hear each other around the table and talk about that facilitation process and how you get that to work. Sure. I'm curious about the cringe moments and what you meant by that. <laughs> but uh, cringe moments, meaning you you heard things that were hard to hear, things that you that you strongly disagreed with. I, I heard people saying things that I knew somebody else on the other side of the table was going to find here. And I, it's mm. been a while since I've watched it now, but I, I remember the older guy was sharing some of his more conservative beliefs. And, and then I think the younger man across the table was like, no, <laughs> you know, okay. That's that's not true. And so those yeah. kind of moments that make you go, are these guys going to get really gonna angry? Go? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Trepidation around whether is this all going to blow up and escalate. Yes. Um, yeah. They say that good storytelling ignites the car crash part of our brain. So <laughs> that's good if you, if you were leaning in and wondering if this is all going to go off the rails. you're enjoying this podcast as you listen you're going to realize that uh, melissa pushes back on me a little bit and that's what i love i love having those discussions i love having people challenging my beliefs i think it's worth it i hope you're finding it worth it too i mentioned the npe patreon group to help with a little financial support i i do want to tell you a little bit about one thing it's my audiobook series which i love i've taken my novel my novel is called Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. It's it's my imagination of what Jesus would have to say to the evangelical church were he on earth in the flesh today. I'd love for you to read the book. You can get it on Amazon or off my website. But if you join our Patreon community, you get my audiobook series. I'm doing it in segments. I sort of break it up into just a few chapters each time and We've got just a few more segments to go. So if you join now, you can hear all the book from the past and keep moving forward with us as well. Go to nppodcast.com. Click on the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. Get access to the Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong audiobook series of my novel. It's a lot of fun. I'm very proud of it. I love it a lot, and I hope you enjoy it as well nppodcast.com click on the Patreon button now back to our discussion with Rabbi Melissa Weintraub from Resetting the Table 
having hard discussions across America. Enjoy at NPPodcast.com. What's your process for getting people to be honest around a table together with somebody whose view disagrees with theirs, which is sometimes either a very rare or very difficult thing to happen in society today? Yeah, yeah. That is like the heart of our secret sauce, I guess you could say. The, I'll say that the methodology that we have is focused on studying what happens to people in conflict and how people get out of that ugly state of being in conflict that has a lot of really patterned tendencies. Um, so we tend to get self-absorbed when we're in conflict. And even when we're in conflict with a loved one, someone we were connected to a moment ago, we tend to get cut off and disconnected, self-absorbed. We tend to get rigid, which can just look like getting entrenched and digging in, getting inflexible. And we tend to get weak, which is the most counterintuitive one. But you, often when people are in conflict, they use words like overwhelmed and I wasn't myself. I was out of control. I wasn't who I wanted to be. The, the methodology that we use is all about shifting people out of those states from self-absorption into reconnection and empathy and recognition from rigidity into flexibility and receptivity. Receptivity is really the key. And from overwhelm and weakness into empowerment, into people being the best version of themselves. So there's a, a whole host of interventions and we have a facilitation methodology. We're trained people for many months to be able to sit around that table and help people talk to rather than past each other and move from their most rigid selves into their most receptive selves and be able to overcome their confirmation bias and motivated reasoning to take in new information and ideas and humanity. But I, the, the fundamental uh, kind of tenets of it are that the, the facilitator is trying to capture every party as they wish to be seen. So everyone as they on their terms without editorializing, how does this person want to be seen? How do they want the other people around the table to see them? What's their story as they see it? Without any caricature or distortion to be able to help that person articulate as eloquently and generously as possible how they see things and to be seen by the others around the table, to be able to excavate their underlying motivations and concerns and, and meanings. So that's we call that process following the meaning, like we're looking for what's underneath what they've said so that other people, if they were able to see it, they would understand what's really moving this person, not just their surface position, but what has really shaped them. And then to be able to capture and de-escalate the differences. So part of our methodology is also about going towards the heat. We go towards differences, not towards common commonalities and common ground, which is a, a key part of taking the sting out of differences and saying, okay, now we know what they are and we can just become partners in conflict and, and exploring and investigating that we're not afraid of them anymore. And often when we go towards our differences, rather than towards our commonalities, the commonalities actually come out much more strongly. And we realize, oh, we agree about 98% of the picture and the 2% that we disagree about now we can, we can simply learn from and it becomes something generative and less scary. You must have amazing stories of seeing people come in fairly in, ensconced in their belief systems and then see a change of seeing people differently. Yeah, we do, certainly. I will say that uh, when people really actually change their minds from a two-hour experience, it's usually traumatic. You know, people always want to know, well, did anybody change their minds? And the truth is that we, we want to create the conditions in which we ma are maximizing the likelihood that people will be able to challenge each other's positions. Like we're not making a kumbaya, let's just all have peace and understanding and back away from things. Like on the contrary, we want to create the conditions for people to push each other, to challenge each other, to confront each other. And and it does happen that people say, I've never thought about that before, or I think that the way I come at things is fundamentally wrong. But for people to change like in an instant, in a dramatic way, is a traumatic thing. And it's something that we do want to ease people into those changes, because when changes are more subtle and slower, they tend to stick more and they tend to be something that people can integrate. I imagine, I don't know 
how this worked in your own life story. But does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think it's I think it's been a journey for a while. I'm a change person. I love I'm one of those weird people. I love change. I always want something new. Mm. And, and so that's that's probably a little bit of a different personality for me. But for me, I always tell it was one part of my belief system got un, unhinged a little bit in in my seminary training when I found out there were good Christian people who believed differently about some theological things that were really important to me. And to find out good people believe differently was just, I always say it's the string on the sweater that just got pulled a little bit. Mm. And then all of a sudden that string just kept coming and coming. And then it was like, what else do I believe that maybe other good mm -hmm. people don't believe? And so that all sent me on a, on a journey of, of discovery. And I loved it. it. It has always been exciting. But yes, it has. There are times when you have to mourn leaving some things behind in that. So for you, being challenged and being even changed is, yeah. is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That is rare. But it does. <laughs> it's a particular disposition and we need more of it in the world and we need to cultivate it. Yeah. People inviting that the being having to confront their blind spots and they're called blind spots for a reason and, and most people don't want to don't want to see their own blind spots and and that's what what I I'm trying to do is hold up a mirror a little bit to us as an evangelical community in America and say hey are we this is how other people are seeing us are we comfortable with this do we believe mm -hmm. it matches the teachings of the bible and and our bible and how we follow it and one of the things that's really difficult is abortion is such the keystone issue and I can get people to agree that, hey, maybe that Democratic candidate isn't a horrible person, but they're still a baby killer. And mm -hmm. that baby killer idea is hard to get over. And I don't know, mm -hmm. do you deal with that issue as you're turning toward those hard issues? And how would you encourage somebody to even have a discussion around an issue where there are those that that I believe honestly and with the best of their heart believe babies are being murdered on an ongoing mm -hmm. basis. And the other side is, I'm not a baby murderer. I just have a different yeah. view. How do you get people to have that discussion? Yeah, so that is definitely one of the hardest conversations to facilitate and convene. For, for the, so much is at stake for every person around the table when they're talking about abortion and everyone thinks life is at stake, Exist, existence is at stake. and And there is so much demonization and mutual vilification in the culture. The, the people who are operating in a reproductive rights framework or a pro-choice framework are also miscasting often the, those who are operating in a pro-life framework. And there's all kinds of, they don't really believe it, support life. They're just pro-birth and they, they only care about the baby until it's born and all of these kinds of distortions, really, that that are in the way of the conversation. With every conversation, where we begin is with people getting underneath all of that to see each other holistically. So we often will begin with people sharing formative life experiences that have shaped their moral and political lens. Like what in your life has impacted you, has led you to see the world the way that you do? It is far easier for people to move from rigidity into receptivity when they're talking about life experiences because they're dealing, you can't argue with experience on some level. And they're also, they're coming to see a lot of what has obscured, what gets obscured in the public conversation about an issue. They're seeing, why does this person care? And why should I care about them? What, what has informed their worldview? It's a place to start. It's not the ending of the conversation, but it's a place to begin. And then we take it from there with the interventions that I was talking about before, but it's really important for us to slow things way down because there is so much, there is so much mutual distortion to slow things way down so that people even just understand what each other's saying analytically. There is so much, there's so much projection that ends up entering into that conversation. And projection is you're just saying the other person is evil and, and nothing of value can be attained from there. What does that projection look like? And sorry, my dog is joining the conversation. Oh no, it's right okay. Now. This is the situation we are in. 
Absolutely. So tell me more about that projection. What does that look like? We have Thanksgiving coming up. And while COVID may keep some families from getting together, family time is different and, and families are having hard times having these conversations. And so out of your experience of doing this, what advice can you give to people to help in their own conversations, particularly in, in families where relationships are being disrupted by these disagreements? Yeah. Um, the family conversation is always one of the, the most fraught. Ron Heifetz, who's a, a, a professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, was talking after, after the 2016 election and said, I have five tips, but the first one is don't start with your family. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> Everything else I'm about to say, don't start with your family. Just an, another anecdote, we've, we recently had a, a lifelong mediator sitting in a workshop and trying to put into practice something that he does every day. And he just couldn't do it. Like he could not do the skill. And he, he finally said, I can't do this. Remind me of my mother-in-law. I think often it's easier for people to put things into practice with fellow community members where they have a little bit of psychic distance and it's not overladen with all kinds of other family dynamics. And, And it's also just incredibly meaningful and important for people who are in lifelong relationship, who want to sustain their relationships to go there. And it's damaging to our relationships to not go there, whether we're escalating or we're avoiding. More often, we're avoiding the elephants in the room and we're circling around things or tiptoeing around things that really matter to us. And that causes relational harm just as much as if we escalate because we're not really, we're afraid to talk about something that if it doesn't come out constructively is likely going to come out destructively and regardless make us feel alienated from each other. So all of that is to say those Thanksgiving dinner table conversations, the 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 infamous ones, it's not always the right time to pull out these conversations if they're, especially in the aftermath of this election, which may be the most fraught and contentious of our history. We don't know where we're going to be at the end of this month, but we may still be in that contentiousness and wrapped up in it and likely will be regardless of outcome. A collect, a big collective conversation, especially if people are on Zoom, it may not be the time to take out these conversations. And And at the same time, we do encourage people to go there, particularly one-on-one or in smaller groups. And and I'll I'll go back to something I was saying about our methodology in terms of tips. The most important thing is for for whoever we're talking to to feel that we see them as they see themselves and to, to, to work hard before we react, to slow down, to discipline ourselves. If we want our challenges to be taken in, if we want to push people, that First, we slow down to capture other people as they see it, as they see themselves, and to make sure that we are not ourselves misrepresenting their position, setting them up as a straw person, not really understanding where they're coming from. The, there's a wealth of research that shows that when we do this, it makes it brings out people's ease and connection and receptivity and flexibility. It's a skill that often is called reflection in active listening trainings, we call it demonstrating understanding. And it, it's, you can even repeat to yourself as a mantra, let me see if I get it for you. It's this and this, and really ensuring that the this and this is capturing the essence of what the other person has said, or asking if you don't know and not assuming that you know, mm. and working at it. Because so often when conversations are circular and go off the rails, the other person is thinking you don't get it. And so I'm going to keep then we have the circular, you don't get it. No, you don't get it. No, you don't get it. (laughs) Is there a time, you know, and again, being a Christian, we're followers of the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament of the Christian Bible. There were times when Jesus said to people, hey, you're wrong. And what you believe is really evil. And, and, but is there a time, is there a time to tell people what they believe is wrong? Or is that never going to get the outcome that we hope to get? Yeah, there is a time to tell people that we see things differently than they do. And we want to push and challenge them. Absolutely. And we want to make it possible for people to challenge each other. But we want to make it possible for people to challenge each other effectively for those challenges to get taken in. And most of the time, the ways that people are challenging each other are not being taken in at all. 
they're ineffective, they're inspiring defensiveness, they're they're inspiring escalation or people just wanting to just entering into fight or flight. Like I'm out of here and I'm not taking in anything that you have to say. So what we want is for people to be able to push each other, to challenge each other, but to do so in ways that are that are going to be effective, that are going to be heard, that are even going to be persuasive. You'll often hear dialogue people say the point is understanding. It's not changing anyone's minds. And we don't think that's desirable or realistic. Like we want to stretch each other's thinking. But the, the question is, how are we going to do that in, way, in a way that is actually going to be taken in and, and have an impact? And the other thing I will say here is that there is just a premature reflex in our society today to, to dismiss, to categorically dismiss. And we often people look like demons to us who aren't. And, and there's there, we often are, are missing a lot about what other people think. And this is one of those things that is not persuasive to most people, what I'm saying now. It's something that I witness and experience as someone who's shuttling between different kind of islands of worldview. But, but we often are projecting, as I said earlier, all kinds of things onto each other. And it, this comes out around, around virtually every contentious conversation, whether it's around uh, abortion or guns or gay marriage or racism, you know, all of the societal ills, there is a, just an enormous amount of projection that's happening that leads us to prematurely say you're wrong without just even analytically understanding what people are talking about. <laughs> Let alone <laughs> it's and it seems like we it seems like we have a desire to put a label on one another. I, I often in my community am, am challenging some of our precepts and and I'll what I'll get back from people is you're clearly a liberal and you love Nancy Pelosi. Uh-huh. Um, I happen to be a Republican registered still hanging on by my fingertips mm. and have been a conservative my whole life but see some value in some of the other things and actually think we have some ideas that need to pull against each other and create tension that gets us to a good equilibrium. But I found that if people seem to think if they can just call me a liberal, then they can discount those things. So is labeling something we need to avoid? Yeah. that I will say that kind of quick labeling is very much a, it's itself a symptom of 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 intractable conflict. That kind of the way that this plays out around Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Someone says Judea and Samaria or Palestine or any number of other things, and everyone's minds immediately think, "Oh, you're one of those." Yeah, exactly as you said. I can discredit everything else about you and everything else that you say, and that readiness to put each other in boxes and to not see the complexities of each other's positions, to see each other as human beings who've arrived at things in complex ways, who are still in process, who might fit into this box in one way and this box in another and no box on any number of other things like that. Uh, We're just missing so much of each other as well as of the issues at hand. And that's really what drives me in this work. Like we, that labeling, that reflex, leads us to miss out on dimensions of the problems that we face and how to solve them. I have found that if I can display humility, and particularly if I ever make a mistake and somebody points out, hey, you said this on social media and that was wrong, and I at least say, hey, let me take a look at that and see if I got it wrong, that tends to open people up to discussion and and surprise them. Mm -hmm. So I found that to be a pretty effective tool to say, I try to ask questions, but on social media these days, even when you ask questions, people feel like it's an attack. But with, I found that when we're willing to show some humility of ourselves and say, or even say, hey, maybe my answer was a little bit stronger than it should have been. Sorry about that. It does tend to get people to to stand down themselves and calm down a little bit and gets us to a little more productivity, mm-hmm. it seems. Yeah, Absolutely. Our humility invites others' humility. Our curiosity tends to invite others' curiosity. And our adversarialism invites others' adversarialism. It's, that's <laughs> absolutely right. And, and we can only control ourselves, but, but we invite the mirror image of, of what we bring. But so I, I, 
Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Go ahead. So resetting the table, you were talking about porting this from this Israeli-Palestinian conflict into sort of the American political discourse arena. So what's the, what was, what drove you to that? And what's the goal? And and maybe what's the danger if you and others in this space don't succeed in that goal in, in the United States, you think? What drove us to bring our tools to the U.S. context? Yes. Yeah. So I think I, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but that, but really in 2016, we looked around us and said that we're at, we're, this is familiar, this level of mutual unintelligibility, vilification, and where this goes. You know, like history has shown where this goes. And after working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for 25 years, I've seen how bad this can get. When uh, we get to this point where people say, I don't care about you, like if you suffer, I may even take pleasure in it. That tends to produce harm. Uh, and I, I think you asked a bunch of questions. So I want to, <laughs> what's the, what is the goal? So I'll say that we often think about all of the different costs of not doing this work and that the flip side is what's gained through doing it. So there are tremendous relational harms. I've talked a lot about risk of violence, but then there's also far more interpersonal and subtle harms. There was a study after the 2016 election that 16% of Americans cut off a family member. After that election, that's and it, it, that suggests 50 million lost relationships. Like it's just staggering when you think about all of those lost friendships, family member relationships. There are just communities that have unraveled around political differences, communities that had been there for each other and sorrow and, and joy. They've celebrated with each other. They had been there for each other through loss and have fallen apart over politics to the point that factions of those communities don't speak to each other and have become another symptom of our siloing. They each form their own church. All of these things, as we see it, are just tremendously harmful relationally. Even if, even when it doesn't escalate into violence, there's just tremendous grief and loss and all of that. And we lose a lot of insight and problem-solving capacity, as I've said, a few different ways. We also lose our capacity to be politically effective. And I haven't talked a lot about this, but wherever we stand, mm. social change requires our capacity to speak to people who aren't with us, who aren't in our echo chamber, who they you know. And scholars of social change have demonstrated that we can't just mobilize those who are with us and take pride in the number, their numbers. And virtually any kind of social change on any issue is going to require building coalitions with strange bedfellows, being able to reach them. And not to mention the ways that Washington is getting nothing done because it, and not really representing <laughs> anyone because of gridlock and dysfunction. So there's so many costs. And the, the goal for us is to overcome those costs, to, to build the kinds of conversations in which people come to heal relationships they come to confront their blind spots and help others to confront blind spots and gain insight and intelligence and sharpen each other's thinking and see dimensions of problems that they hadn't seen before and find ways to collaborate that are unexpected and and to support democracy, right? Like they have the capacity to maintain social cohesion and to work together to, to be able to, to solve problems and fix our country. So there's a lot to be gained and there's a lot to be lost without it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important. I, I think democracy works when we consider ourselves one people. And if we don't consider ourselves people that can live together and have common goals, I'm not sure how democracy, particularly of a population so diverse and wide, far flung as ours can survive. And I don't like to, I don't ever want to be a doomsday prophet, but it does seem it goes to the very heart of our democracy that we believe an election, we can fight it out. And after that election say, okay, your side won. Now let's all be on the same team. And if that goes away, it does seem like yeah. it's going to be hard for us to continue to thrive as a country, doesn't it? 
Yeah, we need some minimal shared sense of we. Like the, our motto is out of many one. And so there's the oneness aspect and there's the manyness. And the, the manyness is never erased. And we often emphasize the differences. Like we, they, you know, we're not about papering over the differences. There are profound disagreements. And there always have been profound disagreements. As you said, you invoked the, the Hamilton example. The question is, do we settle those differences in the street? The streets, or do we settle those differences not just through elections and courts, but through uh, through debate, public debate, and through working together when possible in coalition with each other, and through protest and agitation and all of the other tools, but not through violence and not through uh, kind of fundamental rejection of the other's existence or seeing the other as a monster. So that's what we're what we're really coming to. I'll tell you what I love, what I'm hearing from you is because what I do see in our evangelical community is you either have the people going to the extremes and vilifying the others, or then there's this ever-growing patch of people who are like, we just shouldn't talk about this at all in the church, and we should just talk about God and saving souls. And I just don't think you can do that. I think we've got to be able to talk about the places we disagree. Absolutely. and not just come to a, an agree to disagree place necessarily, mm-hmm. but reason it through together and come to some common solution together to survive. So yeah, I, I, I love that aspect of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I'm with you about everything except the common solution. <laughs> that, but this is this is really the <laughs> this is the language that we we often speak. We talk about finding you know, overcoming the sense that our only choices are antagonism or avoidance that our only choice is either we escalate around our differences or we um, tiptoe or we disengage altogether. And what we want to do is build courageous, bold, and still constructive engagement with our differences. And we often talk about instead of common ground, meeting ground, and common grappling, like we're not always going to get to a common solution. We're all, especially on a topic like abortion, there are just fundamentally different ways of seeing that issue. But when we come together for meeting ground and common grappling, a lot of insight emerges that isn't necessarily a common solution, as well as capacity for collaboration, as well as just seeing that each other as human beings with integrity who are coming at this as, as moral and likable, reasonable people as opposed to monsters. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, so I, yeah, I'm processing that through a little bit on the, because I, I guess for me, a, a common solution is like, hey, we are going to have to move forward together. So we're going to have to find some place we can, we can sit on the same wagon and go in the same direction. And so that means, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that, is. so there is a space where I can say, I'm going to hold this belief dear, but I'm going to allow you to have this other belief and be on the same wagon. So maybe that's what I'm talking about in the common solutions for us to, to survive without separating. And I'm an evangelical. And so we're very proud of our denominationalism and we will break relationship over carpet coloring and wall paint and all kinds of other things, how we take, you know, Lord's supper together or any of these things. But at some point we've got to find some way to sit on the wagon together and head in that direction. So I guess that's what I'm thinking about on, on common solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or and we the, just divide. Sitting huh? on the wagon together is allowing for our differences. That's without cover, without forcing consensus. Sometimes we talk about the goal as generative dissensus. Like the goal is to allow us to live with our differences generatively. Very good. All right. So tell me about the, f- the wagon together. Yeah, without pushing somebody off the side. Yeah. So tell me about the film. How did the idea for the film come about and how did it come together? Sure. I mentioned a couple of times that we have done a lot of work in rural Wisconsin and Iowa. And we, I'll tell an origin story. We went to that area in 2017 
And we brought a team of 36 facilitators and interns with us, and we conducted 330 interviews with farmers and waitresses and school teachers and stay-at-home moms and auto mechanics, every persuasion of pastor and priest, from evangelical to Catholic to Lutheran, Presbyterian, you name it, or a lot of different Christian leaders who were involved in that project. The I will say that for most of the people that we brought with us, the experience was like shifted their understanding of the political landscape in America. And I should just zoom out for a little bit of context here. Our interns were coming from deep blue echo chamber institutions, progressive enclaves like UC Berkeley and Oberlin and Brown. And one of them said to me something that's always stayed with me. She said, I feel like I have been conditioned my whole life to only hear stereotypes of the views that I'm taking in and not to understand these views in terms of their own internal logic, in terms of them on their own terms, let alone the human beings behind them. So I've said that Mm -hmm. we see it as tremendously dangerous that we have these perception gaps and projections onto each other. But the seed for the film project was born there because we see film, we are limited in how many people we can get on airplanes to cross, to fly across the country even before COVID. But we see the ways that we don't have an understanding of each other, where each other is coming from on so many different levels as dangerous and harmful. And film can build empathy. It can lift us out of our little worlds. It can take us on proxy journeys. It can initiate us into an understanding of people different than ourselves. So as you'll see, one of the things that drives me is bringing people who are in progressive echo chambers into contact with people with whom they disagree. And that was very much one of the the motivations around the film to give people a kind of gentle way of doing that and to give them practice to build the muscles for making room and developing more spaciousness, which I think is really missing in a lot of progressive worlds today. But it's uh, but it is also being used in many conservative communities and many purple worlds that are ideologically mixed for in initiating people into an understanding of their political counterparts as well. Film gives us a kind of safe way to see our political others and to see their complexity and integrity, to see the kinds of conversations we should be having everywhere but aren't modeled and to get exposed to those kinds of the kinds of fault line debates on fault line issues that we should be having in our communities and in our country everywhere. And people can sign up and and have viewings of this film. And you guys help facilitate those discussions around it. Is that right? Yeah. So there's dozens of screenings happening. I think we're now at more than 150. And they're happening in churches. They're happening in middle schools and high schools, civics classes, and campuses, both in places that are politically mixed, where people want to be able to have the conversation first through proxies and then to have it themselves, and also in places that are more politically homogeneous and where people want to practice in relation to people different than themselves by watching them on a screen. We are generally not facilitating the conversation. I, wish, I should say that part of the idea behind the film was also uh, for to have uh, something that could bring this kind of work to people at scale without us having to be in every room. The the great thing about it is that thousands of people are making it their own, and there are there are pastors and campus professionals and teachers using it all over the country. The, the interesting thing about this discussion is, is learning, I think, for some of us that there are progressive echo chambers in Central California, oh, yeah. where I live. I, I know California is considered a very progressive left leaning state, which it is, but Central California is. Iowa and and rural Wisconsin and these places you're talking about very very much a red state in the middle of, yes. of the bluest of blue states out here and so I think some people here would be surprised to find out that progressives live in an echo chamber because we're so familiar with the conservative side and that that side of the echo chamber so 
it's nice to know it can happen on both sides of the uh, political spectrum. That's really interesting. I have heard from a lot of people living in more red and purple areas that their sense of pro progressive siloing and vilification of others with whom they disagree is one of the, the it's it they see it as one of the, the root causes and major problems in America today. So I, I I'm curious with your uh, among your listeners, I wish we could pull them right now and see <laughs> how they see this. But I think yeah, I think I, I, I think that these are yeah, go ahead. People yeah, are sitting I mean, in very different places. Yeah. So they I and and I tend to my challenge to to my folks on that is, is there is how do I say this? Uh, sort of a, a desire to pressure. We want to be oppressed. We want to be victims. And so that progressive elite, you talk about Berkeley and Brown, and the, those are our enemies because those are elites trying to put us down, call us deplorables. And so mm. I do understand what you're saying about the view of from conservatives of the siloing, but I see it as from our immense desire to be victims and to be oppressed. You're saying that there's a desire to be victims and be oppressed among those who are launching that critique? Yeah, I would say I, I see in conservative in the conservative world and particularly in, in Christianity and Donald Trump has played on this a great deal of I'm saving your religion and Christians feeling very much oppressed. And yes, it may come out of some of that progressive siloing, but I also see it just seems like we've wanted to be an oppressed religion for a really mm. long time. So, what, so you're saying that you don't really see those dynamics of oppression or per persecution. You think that people, like that people have a sense of being persecuted as Christians, but that they're, they just want to see themselves that way. Is that I, 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 there's yeah. no question Christianity has moved from being the absolute majority it used to be. A culture is changing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see that as oppression. I just see that as diversifying of culture and a change of culture. Yeah. And I, but I do believe that there are some, and some of it is partly this end times belief system that we are going to be oppressed. But mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I talk to people who do ministry in China and places like that, I don't think we have any idea what oppression looks like in the United mm -hmm. States and, and probably... Yeah. Chain, culture change is different than oppression, I would say. Yeah, I hear you. I do, I think I, I, I may come at that somewhat differently based mm -hmm. on the, the, the experiences and that I've taken in, and especially in recent years. And I understand the experience of, of being, I, I think oppression and persecution are words that get overused and should be reserved for, like you said, you're essentially saying, I'll show you what oppression and persecution <laughs> looks like, right? Like, this is not oppression <laughs> and persecution. But I think that it's really hard to be a Christian and to be a religious conservative in particular in many environments today. And this is something that that resonates with me deeply. I, I grew up in central Illinois and in the evangelical heartland. And it was very evangelical dominated place. And, and this is something that really shaped me in my involvement in this work. Like my first kind of models of activism was, was my father sweeping into my school to try to explain to my teachers that singing songs about Christ was neither inclusive nor. This was, I had a lens of a religious minority from the time I was a child that kind of gave me a bifocal vision of being inside and outside. Ironically, I that experience, I think, has led me to really resonate with what it's like to be an evangelical who's working for a place like Organic Valley, which is a progressive haven or who's trying to teach in academia where everybody just assumes that you're a buffoon and or to work in any kind of other progressive environment where the diversity and inclusion committee is all about including everyone except you and makes you the butt of the joke. And I think that those dynamics are real. I think it is really hard to be a religious conservative in a lot of environments in America today where one gets subjected to a firing squad and and yeah, so that's that and I've seen all of that happening in progress. That's good. I appreciate yeah. that perspective. My experience has been very different 
as my wife and I have moved in progressive circles, and we've just found in general, people are have uh, are affable to our religious beliefs as long as we don't demand they come into alignment with them. <laughs> and and I have tried to explain to to my evangelical friends if we want to some of what we would call oppression is. I think there was a school in Texas that a public school that would hold up a banner with a Bible verse for their football team to run through before the game. And the Texas Supreme Court ruled you couldn't do that. And and so we take that and say, look, religious oppression. And so I've I'm trying to explain that to my friends of how would you feel if that was something from the Quran that they were running through or something from another religion? you would not want that to happen to your kids. And mm-hmm. so can, again, I think it's what kind of what you're trying to do is can we see this from other people's perspective and say, nobody's saying you can't have a Bible, you can't believe the Bible, you can't teach the Bible. They're just saying in this sphere, yeah, we're going to make room for all religions there. I think, yeah. And the examples you're talking about are about really on some level about the establishment clause and separation of church and state and being able to recognize that that in that public spaces should be inclusive of people wherever they're coming from, which I appreciate as a rabbi. And at the same time, I think what crosses a line is when people are shut down, judged, insulted, all kinds of things on the basis of their religious identity, which I also do see happening in yeah. progressive spaces. And I think it's really important to, to name those dynamics because they're entirely counterproductive and and they are part of the problem. And there's problems abound in, in many different groups. But, <laughs> yes, Hillary um, did. Secretary Clinton did not help with the deplorables word. Yeah. yeah. I, As someone who is living in the other part of California, I want to push the people around me to. The, the demon, if one just... I, I'm talking on a different train of thought now, but if one just enters the word evangelical into the Washington Post or New York Times search engine and sees what comes up, almost every single thing is negative. Like, it's really a problem as yeah, I see it, yeah. you know? And and as an evangelical, I would say some of that we've earned. <laughs> some, <laughs> some of that we brought on ourselves. But I, we do tell our Democratic friends all the time, our, our people who are involved in Democrat politics, that not valuing what the church communities bring to our cities and our cultures and our neighborhoods is a problem. And not, it, it seems like in the Democratic Party, it's mm-hmm. difficult to enunciate an appreciation for that value, even though still the, there's a large portion of the Democratic Party who say they're Christian and Christian values are very important to them. So mm-hmm. it, I think even if the Democratic Party was willing to voice that and and mm-hmm. maybe they're afraid of an extreme of their own party and that but just voice that hey there's a value here they're and not acknowledging they're not bringing they're yeah. not courting evangelicals effectively you're saying and they're not even acknowledging the value there's a, right. yeah skittishness around religion in general sometimes there is and and even i think as you mentioned around the abortion issue just trying to say if we could understand that this is a passionate issue for people and not just a political issue but really a moral issue and work from that perspective. Absolutely. I think all of those things could help that conversation. A great Absolutely. Deal. And what you just did right there is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of recognition. Yeah. Like just that acknowledgement, this is a fundamental moral issue. This is not about people who don't care about justice or who don't care about women or women's choices or bodies or all like that. You just acknowledge like this is a moral issue for people, period. So right. let's let me finish with this. Then, how are you feeling about election day? And this will probably post after election day uh, later this week. But I think even when we came on together, it was kind of like considering all that's going on, we're doing okay. How how are yeah. you feeling about election time in America these days? Yeah, I'm as nervous about it as anyone else. I will say there's just a tremendous amount of I think tensions could not be higher, really. And I found it difficult for our organization even to properly scenario plan. There's like, we can map out all of the different scenarios of what might emerge, but really our plan is to listen. There's just an element of this could go so many ways and we are going to need to be tremendously agile to play a healing role and to 
rebuild. There's been so much focus on just defending, protecting democracy, but there hasn't been nearly enough focus on rebuilding and sustaining democracy, which requires is going to require people stretching to heal relationships and divides and transform the divides in our country. So we are going to be listening carefully, walking away from this, whichever way it goes, how we can best do that and serve that purpose. Wow. That's an amazing goal. And so I appreciate the work you're doing. I know it's not easy and we wish you well in in helping us get to some good conversations with each other. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, it's been a joy to talk to you, Rabbi Melissa Weintraub. And we look forward to talking to you again. And hopefully people will see the film. How can they find out? Where can they access the film and access the ability to have a showing? Great question. The easiest way is to go to resetting the table slash purple. And you'll be able to see the film on YouTube and also access a discussion guide as well as a screening interest form. We do ask people who want to screen it to fill out that form. It helps us offer support and also to track how the film is being used. So resettingthetable.org slash purple and you'll find the film as well as the discussion guide and other resources to support you. All right. Awesome. Keep up the great work. Good talking to you today. Thank you so much. All right. You too. Take care.